when a young boy has reoccurring nightmares of being chased by a man, he fears falling to sleep. Because in each nightmare, the man gets closer and closer and closer. And then we travel to Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, on that fateful day, April 19th, 1995, when Timothy McVeigh detonated a bomb blowing up the federal building. However, when a police officer arrived at the scene just minutes after the blast, he began digging through the rubble, hoping to find any sign of life. Instead, as he dug inside the remains of this building, he uncovered a government plot. Is it possible that the U.S. government was behind the Oklahoma City bombing? Today on Dead Rabbit Radio. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Dead Rabbit Radio. I'm your host, Jason Carpenter. I'm having a great day. I hope you guys are having a great day too. I hope you guys are having tons of fun doing whatever you're doing. Quick note, we will not be having a Christmas Day live stream. That's something we've done. I think, I don't know if we've done it every single year the show's been on. We might have started that a little bit later. We've always had a Thanksgiving live stream. I love doing those, but I'm going to be traveling this Christmas, so I will not be able to do a Christmas Day live stream. Possible New Year's Day live stream. Everyone's all hungover, crawling around on their carpet, covered in dried puke. That's the perfect time to sit in front of YouTube and do a live stream, but that would be fun. I think a New Year's Day live stream would be fun. But someone who's always fun, no matter what the holiday is, running into Dead Rabbit Radio Command. Everyone get on your feet and give it up for Jesus Christ. Woohoo! Yeah! Wee! Ha ha ha! Yeah! He's jumping on in. He's jumping on in. Now, don't get your hopes up. It's not the real Jesus Christ. It is around Christmas time. It's not the real Jesus Christ. That's his Instagram name. Jesus. The reason why we are giving you this shout out not just because you're the Lord and Savior and it is your birthday. The reason why we're giving Jesus Christ the shout out is because he recently posted his Spotify wrapped on his social media. That's a way to get the word out about the show. If you can't support the show financially through the Patreon or through live streams or YouTube channel memberships, that's fine. It truly is just helps spread the word about Dead Rabbit Radio. That helps out so much. Tell your friends, tell your family, tell everyone you know. Dead Rabbit Radio is your favorite paranormal show, and that's why I'm giving shout-outs for the Spotify rap, posting his Spotify wrapped on his social media. Really, really appreciate that. Jesus, let's go ahead and start this episode off. I'm going to toss you the keys to the Jason Jalopy. We're going to leave behind Dead Rabbit Command, drive us all the way out to the land of dreams. First off, i got to give a shout-out and a worried... Note to Dragonova Svetlana. Dragonova has sent me tons of stories over the past year. She sent me a lot of stuff through Reddit. She's really good at finding stuff on Reddit, posting it. But probably about three or four weeks ago, they deleted their account. There is no more Dragonova Svetlana. So I hope everything's okay. You might have just got kicked off Reddit, which is easy. It happens. There are certain Reddits that I'm not allowed to go to, and they're weird ones. They're weird, not like weird fetish ones, but like they're, every so often I'll go to Reddit like life advice and it'll be like, you are permanently banned from, <laughs> it's like, what? I've never been to this one before. I will uncover ones. I think because probably back in the day I posted, so, uh, what I think it comes down to was there used to be 
this anti-porn subreddit that I joined. And because I joined this anti-porn group, and I got kicked out of there. <laughs> I got kicked out of that subreddit too. There was this, I don't even know if it's still around, but there was this, I've been banned from it, so why would I care? There was a anti-porn subreddit, but it wasn't just like, because I get, you know, you have the argument, First Amendment, what is porn, what is art? I understand all that stuff. This was specifically for like women whose husbands and boyfriends were porn addicts. So it was like a kind of a niche thing. I wasn't out there like with a big banner saying no porn, no porn. I'm not a huge fan of porn personally. I don't think it's healthy for young men. Say what you want about women working in the industry, making money. That's a totally different discussion. I don't think it's healthy for young men or old men. But, but, but anyways, the point is, but if you watch it, fine. I'm not going to judge you or anything like that. I was a member. I like followed them, right? I wasn't, I wasn't one of the founders of the subreddit. I go, wow, that's a really interesting subculture. Wives and girlfriends of men who are addicted to pornography. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. Click follow. You know, I'm like in the group now. And people would be like, oh, I came home and my boyfriend was watching porn. <laughs> Jason, I thought you were talking about dreams. What is this? Yeah, I know. I get sidetracked sometimes. But this, I think, is interesting. She goes, this woman goes, my boyfriend's like, I came home from work and he was watching porn. And he told me he would never watch porn again. And we had this huge fight and I don't know what to do. And people are like, well, he broke the rule. Like, you know, he's a porn addict. And he said he wasn't going to do it anymore. And then you caught him watching porn. So you you kind of got to stick to your guns. Otherwise, he's not going to give up porn. And I was like, man, what what a sucky situation to be in for both people. For both people. To be addicted to porn must suck. They call themselves gooners, which is hilarious. But anyways, you're like, Jason, I wonder why you got kicked off the subreddit. You're laughing at all the terms. I'm all LOL, LOL, gooner. No, so I'm like reading all these posts and it's women, they're all against pornography. They are like, this should be illegal type stuff. Like, this is not art. There should be nothing. It shouldn't even be available. I'm not at that level. But I was reading all these posts. Every so often I would comment. I don't know like what I would, I know the comment that got me kicked off. I definitely know that. But normally it would be, I don't think I commented that much. I lurk a lot online, but it was probably stuff like, yeah, that would suck to be addicted to porn or yeah, I don't even know. Just like benign stuff. I didn't spend a lot of time on the subreddit. Just every so often I would interact if the topic, if I could give some insight in the topic or something like that or whatever. Anyways, I know what got me kicked off. And I think what happened was because this was like a militant anti-porn subreddit. I figured this out all on the back end. They were so against porn that they had developed a bad reputation on Reddit. Uh, basically, they were like radical feminists in this subreddit. And I think they had built up such bad blood against other groups in the Reddit that if you were a member of that subreddit, you were banned from participating in like, am I the a-hole? That's the one that I'm permanently banned from or like life advice or life hacks. Like there was this movement that if you're a member of certain subreddits, you're banned from participating permanently, which I don't care. Those subreddits are garbage. 99% of Reddit is garbage. So who cares, right? I just think it's funny that every so often I go on there and it's like, you're permanently banned. I go, I've never been here before. What got me in trouble? So I'm kicked off that subreddit and I can never go, I can never interact with all these other subreddits. One day, someone said, this woman, she goes, I came home and my boyfriend was looking at 
pictures of, and I'm just going to make them a name, like Veronica Dupre, who's this big Instagram model. And I told him, it was the last straw. I can't, I can't deal with it anymore. He was on her Instagram looking at pictures of Veronica Dupre. So what do, what do I do? Of course, I'm going to go check it out. Because I'm like, Instagram's really not pornographic. Like, I'm going to be surprised if you go to Instagram and it's like pornography. So I, if I remember the story correctly, this happened years ago, but I went to the page and it was just, uh, it was Veronica. I don't know exactly what the model was, but in bikinis. Very, very small bikinis sitting at just basic Instagram influencer stuff. We've seen these photos a thousand times. I see them every time I open my Instagram because if you look at who I follow on Instagram, it's either people who I follow because you listen to the show or bikini women. It's like I can't pull out my Instagram. I cannot check my Instagram in public. It's just nothing but women in bikinis. I went and I looked at the photos and I go, what's well, just her in a bikini? This isn't pornography. And so I messaged back, like I put in the reply, I go, well, I understand like your frustration because he said he wasn't going to do it. I go, but it's really just a woman in a bikini. It's not porn. Immediately banned. Permanently banned from the subreddit because I said a woman in a bikini wasn't porn. I, I'll take that ban because it's not, it's not, that is not porn. I can understand if your husband or boyfriend is addicted to Pornhub. And I get it. You don't want him to look at anyone else. What? Fine, fine. You, you're, people are allowed to set their own rules in the relationship, but it's one thing from watching explicit Pornhub stuff to following Lexi Pantera on Instagram, watching twerk videos. Like there's, there's a huge difference between the two easily visibly a difference easily a big difference anyways so that's why <laughs> that's why i'm permanently banned across half of reddit because i joined a group of radical feminists who think women in bikinis sitting by a pool is porn i was banned from that subreddit and now i'm banned from most of reddit why was i talking about that i almost forgot as well dragonova svetlana the account is deleted. I hope everything's okay. I hope that... Because you sent over a lot of good stuff. And even if you didn't send over a lot of good stuff, I just hope things are okay with you in general. But if you do start a new account, reach out to me. Because definitely a lot of great stuff. Like this story right here. Let's go ahead and get this started. Dragonova, thanks for sending it over. We're in the world of dreams. We're sitting in the dream. <laughs> I'm dreaming of women in bikinis. I'm like, oh man, this is the most pornographic dream in the world. I'm getting beat up by Reddit. We're sitting in the land of dreams, and we see this little boy named Jimmy. We, it's not his real name. We'll call him Jimmy. Jimmy is running around. Just running through. To us, it looks just like a random grocery store. But to Jimmy, this is a grocery store that he's been to many times in his waking hours. Jimmy's only eight years old. He's running around. He's hiding. Because he knows who's coming. He's dreamt this same scenario over and over and over again. Jimmy says, The locations of the dreams are different, but they're always a place that I know in real life. A grocery store, a park, a neighbor's home. The riverbank in the area. All of this stuff. He's familiar with these places. But in his dreams, he's running through them. It's these terrifying 
terrifying nightmares of being chased by this man. And he goes, I saw the man so many times. These dreams lasted from when he was eight years old to 16. He goes, I dreamt about him. Not every night, but I dreamt about him a lot. He knew exactly what he looked like. He said it was a man in his 20s, short brown hair, a mustache, wearing a green, orange, and flannel uh, work shirt, light blue jeans, and tan work boots. And he said I'd be in these dreams, and this man would be chasing me. And each dream, well, there were two types of dreams. One of them was where it was he was just watching this man hurt people. Jimmy was there helpless watching this man terribly injure other people. I don't know if they were people he knew in his waking hours, but it wouldn't matter, right? It's still a terrifying dream. You're like, oh, I don't know that guy who's getting sawed in half. He goes, sometimes I would just see the man hurting other people. He goes, but most of the time, this man was chasing me. The dream would be me running through a very familiar location. This man was chasing me, and he would always get close to catching me, and I would narrowly escape. I wake up. Then he'd have the dream again a while later. He's running. This man with the mustache is chasing him through the grocery store. Come here, Jimmy. Come here. I just want to give you a hug. I don't know if he had, I don't know if he said anything or any. I don't know if he was creepy. If he had any catchphrases. Sleep tight, Jimmy. Jimmy says I would narrowly evade capture each time I had this dream. He goes, but the last time I dreamt about this guy, I was 16 years old and I was running along this riverbank. And he caught up to me. He caught up to me and I fall to the ground and he's standing over me. And then out of nowhere, these police officers showed up and begin running towards Jimmy and the man. And they tackle the man, drag him away. Jimmy hasn't had that dream since. He's posting this now. In 2023, he's 42 years old. He goes, I haven't dreamt about this man at all. But, super creepy. This is a creepy story. He said, um, the other day he was talking to his 10-year-old daughter, who we will call Kelsey. I think you know what's coming. I, I think you know what's coming, but it's even weirder than you would expect. Kelsey goes, hey, Dad, I've been having these really weird nightmares lately. I keep having this dream, and it's they're always in different locations, but they're places where I know in real life. Jimmy's like, okay. And Jimmy had never told his daughter about any of these nightmares he had as a kid, obviously, because they're terrifying. So when she said that, Jimmy is kind of like, Okay, then what happens? And Kelsey goes, well, I'm getting chased by this guy. I'm getting chased by this guy, and he always comes really close to catching me, but then I wake up. It's really weird, and I've had the dream a couple times. Jimmy goes, what did the guy look like? Kelsey said, he had short brown hair, a mustache, a green, he had like this green and orange flannel uh, shirt on. Like a like a long work shirt. 
He was wearing blue jeans and uh, boots. I think they were like a, a tan, a, t- a tan work boot, like you would wear. And Jimmy goes, and the guy looked like he was in his twenties. It looked like a young guy. Kelsey goes, no, no, no. Why would you ask that now? He's older than that. He's not grandpa old, but he looks older than a twenty-year-old. So I mean. This is one of those stories that, that, if it is true, Dragonova, thanks so much for sending it over. This is one of those stories that, if it's true, is singularly terrifying. We haven't really come across anything like this. We've come across, and I'm trying to remember if I covered it. I might have just read it a couple times and then put it away in my uh, internet bookmarks. But there are stories about people having similar dreams, family members encountering people in dreams. The same person. A mother and a daughter both dream about being chased down a beach. I don't know if I did that episode. I'll have to see if I have that, because that was another interesting one. We do have stories about that. What makes this one more odd? First off, it was posted online by someone going by the name Five Minute Dad. But if the story is true, people do not share dreams. That is scientifically impossible. Hearing noises in a house, that's possible, right? It can be a hallucination. It can be the actual house making noises and you're misinterpreting it. There's a lot of paranormal activity that can be explained scientifically. But two people cannot have the same dream unless they had the exact same stimuli while they were awake and even then. Something on this level is impossible. If this story is true, then... It's 100% paranormal, which I find absolutely fascinating. The debunking would just be they're lying. There'd be no other way to debunk this. If you see a light in a house, in an empty house, like an orb floating from one room to the next, you can come up with about five different scientific explanations that could cause that. This one, it's either they're lying or it's true and it's 100% paranormal. Fascinating, fascinating story. But the fact that whatever this is, and I wouldn't even know how to classify it, it's aging. It's gotten older from the time Jimmy was 16 to the time now he's 42. It's actually aged. And that just doesn't make sense. Ghosts stay the same age. I'm trying to think of one off the top of my head of a ghost aging. I'm sure it's happened. I can't just recall. And if it did happen, it's like one out of a million. Demons, entities like that, they can take whatever form they want. But listen, I'm 47 years old. I understand that the body, there's nothing wrong with getting older, but you got to look at it too. As you get older, your body begins to break down. There would be no advantage for a demon to slowly age its appearance over time. So if this was some sort of curse, the only here's the thing, the only thing that ages is people who are alive. So what is this? What in the world could this possibly be? I find this story absolutely fascinating. And he said it was just in 2023 he was talking to his daughter and she said, I'm having these nightmares. This is what he looks like. 
but he's not in his 20s. He's in his... The only, the only description we have is she said he's not grandpa old, just older. Just older than someone in their 20s. So, is his hair starting to turn gray? Is his face getting a little more weathered? Weird, though. <laughs> I mean, that's the point. That's the point where you have to seriously start investigating this phenomenon. Jimmy has to figure out what this is. And I don't even know what direction I would send him in. This entity just is kind of out of the box. And that's what makes the story even more terrifying. If it was just a story of someone traveling between a father and a daughter's dreams, that alone is Dead Rabbit Radio worthy. And I'm pretty sure I covered something like that before, but I'll have to double check. But the fact that this... You have this, whatever it is, aging organically. It just puts it in a whole other category. Absolutely fascinating. Jesus, let's go ahead and toss you the keys to the world-famous Carpenter Copter. We are leaving behind a dreamland. Wave goodbye to all the bikini babes. We are leaving behind dreamland. Fly us all the way out to Oklahoma. If you missed yesterday's episode, that's totally fine. You don't have to go back and listen to it. I was supposed to just do a five-minute overview about the traditional mainstream conspiracy theories, Waco, Oklahoma City bombing, World Trade Center attacks, September 11th. Because they're all connected, well, at least in the conspiracy theory world, they're all connected. Waco and Oklahoma City definitely were connected. That's the reason why Timothy McVeigh chose the date, April 19th. That was the two-year anniversary of the Waco siege. But I expected to only do like a five, maybe ten-minute overview. It ended up being like 30, 40 minutes. Um, but if you didn't if you didn't listen to that, that's totally fine. I'm not going to repeat it here, obviously, because then this episode is just going to be an hour long. Let me, because I want to get into, that was a cool overview, and I hope you guys weren't bored. You know, it's funny, when I talk about this stuff in real life, I know, it's I'm super fascinated by paranormal conspiracy and all this stuff. I know most people aren't, or a lot of people aren't. So in real life, I'll say, is this boring? Should we, <laughs> should we change the topic? I mean, I can talk about it for an hour, but is this boring news? So I hope yesterday wasn't boring. But it, to me, it was a really fun overview of, <laughs> fun overview of multiple terrorist attacks. So we're going to skip all that. If you haven't heard yesterday's episode, you can go back and listen to it, but it's not required. It's not required for this one. Because this one, we're going to focus on the life of one man named Terrence Yeeke. So what happened was April 19th, 1995, Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, the Alfred P. Murrow Federal Building was blowing up. Timothy McVeigh drove a rider truck up to the building Jumped up, ran away, the bomb detonated. It killed 168 people, injured 680 more people. A bunch of the victims were children because there was a daycare in the building. Horrific tragedy. We watched it unfold on the news. But for Sergeant Terrence Yeeke, a 29-year-old police officer in the Oklahoma City Police Department, he was there. He was on duty when that call came in. And how would you even process that information? You're sitting there in your police car and all of a sudden, you probably felt the shockwave. You probably heard it. And you're thinking, what in the world could that have possibly been? And then all of a sudden, 
All units respond to the Alfred P. Murrow Federal Building. Massive explosion. And you light those lights up, and you're headed to that, and you think gas line rupture, plane crash. You're thinking all of this stuff. You're not thinking terrorism. It would be the furthest thing from your mind nowadays. You, right? Nowadays, you'd be like, oh, terrorists, they did it. But back in 1995, this was, if memory serves me correctly, the largest domestic terrorist act pre 9 11. I mean, even when you count in all the stuff with the weather underground back in the 60s, they didn't do anything like this. So Terrence Yiki drives to the scene. And gets there, and, I mean, half the building's gone. This bomb was so powerful, it basically gutted this giant office building. It was a nondescript office building. If you didn't know any better, if you just drove by it, that's what you think it was. It actually was where a lot of federal agencies had their offices. ATF. I think there was an FBI. But then you also had stuff like Fish and Game. Yeah, you had like a whole assortment of federal employees, federal offices, and then a daycare for the kids of the people who work there. Terrence gets there. And he's one of the first first responders on the scene. He immediately begins. I mean, you, you, you're walking into rubble and you see arms and legs, people screaming people moaning, people breathing their last breath, and you immediately have to start to just kind of triage the situation. If you see a hand sticking out of the rubble and it's not moving, well, that hand over there, it's like clawing at a piece of rock. So that guy's alive. I'm going to go over there. I'm going to start digging for that. And that's what he does. He ends up saving multiple people, digging through the rubble, carrying people out. He actually gets injured himself, carrying somebody out. He slipped and fell, hurt his back pretty badly. But he did save multiple people that day. And the city saw him as a hero. The people he saved definitely saw him as a hero. But Terrence, as heroes often do, right? They, I'm just doing my job. I'm just a civil servant. I'm glad I was there. I'm glad I was able to help. But dude, this story is nuts. This story is nuts. He gets taken to the hospital because he injured his back. And the only person that they have to call, like family emergency line, is his ex-wife, Tanya. When Tanya goes to the hospital to pick up Terrence, this is... Right after the blast. I mean, he's been treated. All these people are being treated. It's not like an hour after the blast. But when she goes to pick up Terrence from the hospital, he tells her this. He says, quote, Tanya, it's not what they're saying it is. They're not telling the truth. They're lying about what's going on down there. Let me step back here and give credit. I got this article from... I, I found all this. I never heard this story before. CNN... Earlier this year, ran an investigative report. It was written up by Thomas Lake for CNN. And they've been putting out some good stuff. I mean, like, this is hardcore conspiracy we're getting into. I'm surprised they ran this. I think there was recently a change in ownership. But this is like... I didn't know none of this. <laughs> I'm a conspiracy theorist, and I didn't know none of this stuff. The fact that CNN did this huge write-up, I recommend you guys taking a look at it. 
But um, they're bringing these conspiracy theories back to the fold. And it's not just about the story of one man claiming that Oklahoma City was an inside job. There's tons of literature out there saying that. The story of Terrence is not about what the federal government may have done to the Oklahoma City federal building. It's the story about what the federal government did to Terrence to cover this all up. Terrence started talking to his ex-wife, Tanya, once he's out of the hospital. And, you know, this story takes place over the course of about a year. People know him. He's famous for being a hero on the scene. His coworkers are like, great job, Terrence. You ran in. You didn't know what was going on, right? You just see half a building. You start grabbing people out of the rubble. He also began to talk to survivors of the Oklahoma City bombing, people he pulled out as well as other survivors, and the relatives and loved ones of people who died in the Oklahoma City bombing. And there was this undercurrent in some of these groups, not all of them, but there was an undercurrent in some of these groups that they weren't being told the whole story. You had some of these survivors and some of these relatives and loved ones of people who died saying, we don't think that the investigation is telling us everything. They start starting their side investigations. And if you can have a police officer on this case, not officially, right? Well, actually, we'll get to that in a second. If you can have a police officer helping you out with this stuff, even the better. And a hero police officer who was there minutes after the blast. And he would tell people, he would say, I got there. I was one of the very first police officers, very first first responders on the scene. And he goes, what I found very interesting was in a very short order of time, almost like they were prepared for this. Terrence said he saw a lot of federal agents on the scene. You go, well, it was a federal building. They may have been, you know, coming from other parts of the building. And he's, no, 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 no. He goes, I saw so many federal agents. They got there so quickly and they were all wearing riot gear. Where, where'd all that? I mean, these were offices. Even if you had all the FBI agents come out of their office. What are they doing in all this gear? It's almost like they knew it was going to happen. He said, you know, I was there right away. And I know what they're telling us, that this Ryder rental truck pulled up outside of the building and detonated this large fertilizer bomb. He goes, but from where I was standing when I came in, it didn't look like that happened. He goes, it looked like the building was blowing up from the inside. And everything collapsed on top of it. Rather than the explosion blowing into the building, it blew out of the building. Now, these are observations that he's making, right? He's a police officer. He knows that you just can't look at something and go, you're guilty. He does try to investigate this. He does try to figure out what the truth is. He wanted to get into the basement because he had some theories about that's where the bomb was at. And federal agents were stopping him, saying, you can't come back. You can't come back. Get out of here. But they were down there. They were down there. They were blocking access to what he wanted to look at. 
He ended up writing a nine-page report for the Oklahoma City Police Department. He basically, an official report with all of his theories and everything that he had to back up his assertion that this was a bomb from inside. He was not saying that the federal government did it. He wasn't trying to tie it into the Clinton administration or anything like that. It wasn't going full tinfoil hat. He was just saying, I don't think it was this rider truck. Here's why. He handed in the nine-page report, which he had to do, right? This is part of his job as a police officer. A lot of it's writing reports. He was one of the first people down there. He writes up this nine-page report. He gives it to his superiors, and then it goes missing. He goes, well, well I gave it to, he gave it to you. It's a stack of paper. Where did it go? They're like, we don't know. You're going to have to rewrite the report, though, but leave out all that stuff about the bomb inside. In fact, it can only be one page long. You have to put everything you can down on one page. But you can't write really small, and none of this bomb inside, none of this the way the rebel was or anything like that. Nothing about federal officers on riot armor. Because police reports are, for the most part, you can do Freedom of Information Act request form. I believe if they're not a ongoing case, you can get that. Or any lawyer could definitely get those. Terrence wrote, during this time period now, he's basically, people are starting to think he's crazy. Well, there's two trains of thought. There are people who think he's crazy, and then there are people who think he's onto something. And you have to wonder what group is more dangerous. If your boss thinks that you're crazy, then you might get sidelined, get a desk job, maybe get a forced vacation for a couple months. If your boss thinks that you're actually getting closer to the truth, you don't have any vacation coming. At one point, Terrence writes this letter and he said, quote, I think my days as a police officer are numbered. I think there's a lot of secrets floating around now about my mental state of mind. I believe that a lot of the problems the officers, his, his fellow officers, I believe a lot of the problems the officers are having right now are because some of them know what really happened and can't deal with it. April 19th, 1995 is when the attack happened. Now we're at May 11th, 1996. And Terrence is about to be awarded the Medal of Valor by the Oklahoma City Police Department for his courageous acts in the moments after the Oklahoma City bombing. He doesn't want it. He doesn't want it. He thinks they are actively stopping him from getting to the truth and they want to put a medal on his chest right like to in a way it's like this is the fascinating story because it, think about it this guy he's what 29 is that let me go back he's 29 years old he has an ex-wife let's put all our cards on the table there was some domestic violence allegations between terrence and his wife even at even when she's being interviewed for, with this article she goes we were looking at getting back together we were looking at reaffirming our relationship but terrence wasn't a saint right i'm not going to portray him as a saint but let's look at this you're a 29 year old dude you have an on-the-job injury so he's not 100 percent anymore because he did hurt his back and you're looking at the rest of your life and they are offering you the medal of valor 
they are going to treat you like a hero. You can do all sorts of things. You can become a press liaison. You can get a cushy desk job because your back's hurt anyways. Do you really want to be pounding the pavement? My future is set if I let them pin this Medal of Valor badge on me. But what it, they're doing is they're buying his silence. It's a badge, but it's also a collar. Do I take that Medal of Valor or do I keep fighting for truth even though I know I may lose my job? And then I'm just totally boned. I'll be working at Kinko's or something like that. If he takes that Medal of Valor, they're basically buying his silence. If he takes that... He's officially saying he agrees with the official story. But he's set for life. His career is nothing but golden. But he doesn't believe the official story. He knows that something is up. And he makes it very clear he does not want the Medal of Valor. And that he's going to refuse it. But what he does want is a meeting. He's been telling people in the survivor community, people who are looking in to the official story, that he was recently contacted by two men from a task force. They wanted all the information that Terrence had uncovered. They wanted all the files he was keeping, in a friendly manner, of course, Terrence. We want to see what you got. We're actually investigating it as well. In an official capacity. There was an informal community, like we've said. It was spearheaded by a woman named Ramona McDonald. She was also gathering up information, getting accounts from people at the scene. She also questioned the official story. And, based on what Terrence had told her, She had also met the same men from the same task force. Two men identified themselves as working for this investigative group, and they wanted her photos, videos, documents. They wanted to take a look at all of this stuff that she had gathered so far. And she thought, when Terrence told her, these two guys, they sound official. It sounds like they're going to help us blow this up. No no pun intended, but uh, blow this wide open. When Terrence told Ramona this, she thought, I wonder if it's the same group of people. I wonder if it's... I think in the back of your mind, you would wonder if it was legit. Because so many lies had been spreading for so long. I mean, it's over a year at this point. According to the article written in CNN... It said, quote, Yiki, which is Terrence's last name, Yiki seemed conflicted about whether to go to meet the men. He sensed danger, and these misgivings led him to take a strange precaution. McDonald said Yiki went to the meeting unarmed, so no one could use his own gun against him. Right, that's pretty creepy, because the stakes are high. He didn't want... 
if something bad happened to him, he didn't want people to think he killed himself. That would be the easiest way to cover all of this up. Let's continue this quote. Quote, on the other hand, if the men really were investigating the bombing, this could be Yiki's big chance. Finally, someone with authority was going to listen to him. He decided to bring them the evidence, McDonald said. The men wanted to meet Yiki in El Reno, at or near the federal prison. El Reno was a nearby town. So all of that was happening... In May of 1996, on May 11th, he was supposed to receive the the Medal of Valor. But that did not come to pass, because on May 8th, 1996, in a field near Terrence's hometown, which was El Reno, which is where the men wanted to meet, May 8th, 1996, in a field near El Reno... Terrence's body is found in a field. He was dead from a gunshot wound to his head. His death was ruled a suicide. No autopsy was performed on Terrence's body, but just based on Visual clues, just based on taking a look at him. Apparently, he had cuts to his wrists, his arms, and his neck. The police go, well, that was him. They have this thing. There's a specific term for it. I don't remember it off the top of my head, but it's like hesitant attempts at suicide. So someone might be trying to cut their wrists, and then they give up. Because it's too uh, hard, it hurts too much, then they might try cutting their neck. That's what the police are saying. They go, well, he had these cuts to his wrists and his neck and his arms. He was trying to kill himself and he couldn't, so he shot himself instead. Unfortunately, we do see things like that in suicides. He died in El Reno, in that field near El Reno. However, guess who was in charge of the investigation into his supposed suicide? Oklahoma City Police Department. It was out of their jurisdiction. They did not have the power to investigate a crime in El Reno. However, they took over the investigation. And to this day, like I said, this article was just recently published this year in CNN. These questions are still being asked. Why was Oklahoma City PD allowed to take over the investigation in El Reno involving the supposed suicide of? Terrence, no one can answer why they did that. Nobody can say on an official level why they had the power to do that, but they did. They took over an investigation. It was a suicide, no autopsy. When the CNN journalist Thomas Lake was requesting documents on this, He only got a redacted two-page report. He did not get the full report into his death, which left a whole lot of unanswered questions like what kind of gun was found at the scene? Were there any tests for fingerprints on it that weren't Terrence's? Were there any tests on ballistics to see if that was the same gun that fired the shot that killed Terrence? None of these questions we know the answer to. We can only get access to that two-page redacted report. 
half a mile away from Terrence's body was his car. And in the car, they found a Bible. Razor blade. You know, these are things the the Bible, for a lot of people, gives them a lot of comfort. In their final moments, if they're planning on killing themselves, might be something you want to have nearby. The Bible, a razor blade. So then, again, we're kind of at the suicide thing. A, quote, large amount of blood. Right? <laughs> Not something you would tend to have in your car. Also, you would think if you had a large amount of blood, would, would you know, to be fair, large is a subjective amount, but a large amount of blood, the idea was, was he was in the car, he cut himself in the wrist, arms, and neck. That didn't kill him. So then he walked or ran a half a mile away from his car and shot himself. So again, none of this really adds up. He's just going to kill himself and he's already in the car and there's always blood everywhere. Why didn't he shoot himself in the car? If he planned on killing himself out in the middle of a field so he can enjoy the beauty of nature in his final moments, why didn't he go out there to begin cutting himself? Why did it seem like he'd already lost the, quote, large amount of blood and then took off walking or running into that field just to shoot himself? What's interesting, and we see this a lot in suicides, right? Family members don't believe it was a suicide. Friends of his don't believe he committed suicide. We see this a lot. Fellow police officers, his co-workers go, he didn't kill himself. Terrence didn't kill himself. So that's really interesting. It's sad, you know, you do have families going, I can't believe that they took their own lives. But you have guys who knew him. All these people knew him. Friends and family knew him too. But you have these officers who are like, we don't think he killed himself. And when you say, we don't think he killed himself, the implication, the only other thing is, is that he was murdered. When you have police officers saying that, people don't buy the official story. I, this is so, I'm so grateful that CNN ran this because I had never heard any of this. When these type of stories happen and then get buried, they do need to be brought to the forefront. I do want to read this comment just for um, full. Uh, you know, both sides, well, both sides of this thing. Oklahoma City Police Department spokesman, Master Sergeant Gary Knight, a uh, man, an officer who knew, considered Yiki a friend and was his classmate in police academy, wrote a, this email to CNN during their investigation, quote, there is absolutely no hard or physical evidence whatsoever to support Yiki was murdered. Anyone who suggests the Oklahoma City Police Department, <laughs> the fact that you even have to write this out, you know, <sighs> the fact that you even have to write this out means that enough people are asking the right questions. This email was written out like in 2023. I'm sure Oklahoma City PD, if this was a murder, right, if this was a murder, I'm sure that they had believed this was long over. There is absolutely no hard or physical evidence whatsoever to support Yiki was murdered. Anyone who suggests the Oklahoma City Police Department participated in the cover-up of the murder of one of its most popular officers is engaging in fool's folly. So, that is their official statement on this whole thing. 
And like I said, he did it. CNN highlighted these issues. I feel just to give a well-rounded view of Terrence. Nobody is perfect. Uh, the people who said that he did kill himself said he was a troubled man. He's divorced from his wife. He obviously suffered greatly uh, walking into this impact crater that was formerly a government building, bodies everywhere, screaming, the dead and the dying, all of that. He was traumatized, so he might have just been depressed. He might have just finally succumbed to the madness that can come, sometimes just by being alive, but it can be amplified when you come across such horrific, uh, such a horrific tragedy. And that might be the case. That might be the case. However, there have been more than a few suicides related to the aftermath of April 19th, 1985. More than a few. Some of them, yes, dealing with the trauma. Some of them, yes, people feeling like they can't go on after losing a friend or a loved one in the bombing. Sure, that's going to happen, unfortunately. But some of these suicides, one in particular, the one we're going to look at, to me really sticks out more than the the rest. Because I, I think about it this way. Have you, before this episode, and yesterday's episode, have you ever thought Oklahoma City was an inside job? I've always heard the conspiracy theory, and this is what we talked about in length on yesterday's episode, that Timothy McVeigh was working with Al-Qaeda. This was Al-Qaeda's first big attack on U.S. soil. That's what I had always heard in the conspiracy theory community. I hadn't heard that the bomb came from inside the building, that the government either knew the bomb was there or they covered up that the bomb was there for whatever reason. I never heard Oklahoma City was an inside job. Had you? I did not know that there was this... Lo- I mean, for the on the one hand, this was a really pre-internet. The internet existed, but we were mostly playing like Doom or whatever, and even that was like a LAN party, and maybe, maybe you were reading the news. But it's not like it is today. Definitely not like how it was in 2001. But I had never heard Oklahoma City was an inside job. I had not heard this conspiracy theory. I definitely hadn't heard the story of Terrence. And all these groups of survivors and the relatives of people who passed away in the bombing. Seeking the truth. Collecting these documents and these photos and these interviews and everything like that. Trying to expose what really happened in Oklahoma City. And you have to wonder... Is it because it was pre-internet, the stuff wasn't spreading that much? Is it because it's not really the truth? It's it's not the case? That's why it didn't spread so far, because it just didn't make a lot of sense to people? Or is it because that people who were investigating this were murdered? I'm sorry. <clears throat> Committed suicide. Because we look at the people who died after the bombing by suicide. Now, again, of course, it's a traumatic event. People may commit suicide because of a whole host of things. But let's look at this one particular suicide. I don't think Terrence killed himself. Let me put all my cards on the table with that one. I don't think he killed himself. 
I think he was murdered. By who? Or why? I mean, the why would be they were trying to cover up an investigation. Do Oklahoma City may not have done it. The Oklahoma City PD. And I'm not necessarily even pointing the finger at them. But I don't think he killed himself. And I think he was silenced to make everyone else aware. Because think about it, he was talking to these groups. He was talking to these groups about exposing the truth. And then he goes, oh, I got this meeting with the two guys. He leaves. He commits suicide. Do you think anyone in those groups he was in communication with felt safe? writing a newsletter or sending off letters to local congressmen or talking to the Oklahoma City PD? Would you feel safe after that if a man you were just talking to who you were helping to expose a government plot that killed 168 people commits suicide? But other people did. I'm sure other people were trying to keep this going. Some people saying, I'm going to take that risk and... There's quite a few suicides after the bombing that we see over the years. But the one I want to look at the most, because some of them you can figure are all sorts of um, mental health struggles because of what they went through. It's horrendous. It'd be horrific. I hope I never have to deal with a mass shooting or the aftermath of a bombing. August 1997, let's meet a man named Ted Richardson. He was not there when the building blew up. He was not a member of the first responder teams who were helping pull people out of the rubble. No, Ted Richardson was the assistant prosecutor who helped take down Terry Nichols and Timothy McVeigh. Terry Nichols was McVeigh's accomplice. He's got life in prison. Timothy McVeigh sentenced to the death penalty. August 1997, Ted Richardson drives out to this church parking lot where a lot of Oklahoma City survivors and relatives of people who passed away, they would meet in this church parking lot quite often. They'd use it as an informal gathering place. And I'm sure that he had a lot of contact with these people, right? He's working the case against the two people who murdered all of their loved ones and created all this havoc. He definitely was connected into these groups. So he would have heard the scuttlebutt. He would have heard about, we think this official story is not true. We think there's something else going on. What's interesting is because he is helping put these guys in prison, he can't look at rumors that they didn't do it. He can't can't really uh, let that kid in the way. He's trying to prosecute these guys. But I'm sure that he heard all that stuff. He's interacting with these survivor groups. But on this particular day, in August 1997, there is no other group there. He's in this parking lot all alone, sitting in his car. He's wearing a shirt, a shirt that came out a lot of times during uh, times of national mourning or, or even a lot of times good fun events, right? The Olympics. They'll make shirts. They'll have like memorabilia, never forget 9-11, stuff like that. He's sitting, he drives to this church parking lot all alone, wearing a shirt that says, quote, Nameless Saints, we give our thanks. And it was a shirt that was specifically honoring the first responders who came out 
and helped in the aftermath of the bombing. First responders, even just civilians walking by, people who immediately rushed into this building, the rubble of this building, and began saving lives. The Nameless Saints. We give our thanks. He parked his car in the parking lot of this church, wearing a shirt. Nameless saints, we give our thanks. He then pointed a shotgun directly at his chest and pulled the trigger. Killing himself and soaking his memorial shirt in blood and gore. Over a dozen people killed themselves in the aftermath of the Oklahoma City bombing. And that was... In 1997, where I found that article, by 1997, over a dozen people had killed themselves that were linked to the Oklahoma City bombing. But Ted Richardson was just a man who fought the court case against the killers. Why did he kill himself? Why would he go to that parking lot where so many survivors... And people looking for the truth would go to meet. Why would he go to that parking lot and be wearing a shirt talking about the nameless saints, the people who helped those in the rubble? Why would he drive out to this parking lot, wear that shirt, and then blow a hole through it? Was this just another tragedy linked to a horrific terrorist event? Or was this a carefully crafted message to those still looking into the truth? Was the location of his suicide, the clothes he was wearing, and the man himself, someone who helped put two evil people behind bars, Was all of this a carefully laid out warning? A warning that no matter who you are, if you continue to ask the questions that the government does not want to answer, you will be next. And that could be the reason why we don't often hear the conspiracy theory, Oklahoma City was an inside job. Because anyone who seriously asks that question ends up dead. DeadRabbitRadio at gmail.com is going to be our email address. You can also hit us up at facebook.com slash deadrabbitradio. TikTok is at deadrabbitradio. Dead Rabbit Radio is the daily paranormal conspiracy and true crime podcast. You don't have to listen to it every day, but I'm glad you listened to it today. Have a great day.